This is a HeadGum Podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again as I talk to an amazing expert about all the incredible shit they know that I don't know that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together. We're going to have a great time doing it. And before we get started, I just want to remind you that I am on tour this summer. If you live in Boston, Nashville, the D.C. area, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, or New York City, please come out and see me do stand-up. You can find tickets at adamconover.net slash tour dates. That's adamconover.net slash tour dates. And of course, if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash adamconover. Five bucks a month gets you bonus podcast episodes, exclusive stand-up I don't post anywhere else, including the entire hour of my 2019 live show, Mind Parasites Live. And you can join our live community book club. Right now, we're reading Teen Wins, Games, Agency as Art, and we're going to be discussing that in August. So if you join right now, you can join the book club and discuss the book with us and T live. It's going to be a great time. And we need a great time because I don't know if you've noticed America is a fucking wreck right now. Uh, looking around, there is smoke from a seemingly endless series of metaphorical directions, not to count the actual fires that burn their way across the landscape every year. And trust me, I am very aware of many of the problems happening right now. And we're going to be discussing a lot of them on the show in the future. But this week, I want to talk about one that has gone a little bit less remarked upon than it should, and that is the rise of anti-Asian sentiment and violence in the wake of the pandemic. According to one report, there was a 339% increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans last year. And another study says that Americans are twice as likely this year, 2022, as last year to blame Asian Americans for the pandemic. Now, that's nothing new. There has been a long and terrible history of anti-Asian stereotypes in America. But the weird thing is those stereotypes are often contradictory. On the one hand, Asian Americans are portrayed by some as being connected to sickness and the furor over their supposed fault for the recent pandemic is not that far from the racist presentation of Asian Americans as carriers of incurable disease in the late 19th century. But on the other hand, we have the equally weird and incorrect stereotype of Asian Americans as the, quote, model minority, which posits that they're a uniquely compliant and integrative group who work hard to chase the American dream. And this weird racist myth is something we discussed on Adam Ruins Everything a couple years ago, but it still persists today. And both of these racist stereotypes deny the reality, which is that Asian Americans are a wildly diverse group, both economically and culturally, that they happen to be the fastest growing minority in the nation, and that their history in America, their part in the American story, is hundreds of years old. But when it comes to that Asian American history, most of us, frankly, don't know dick about it. 
almost 60% of Americans can't name a single prominent Asian American. Not one, not even George Takei, and he has been on TV in our faces daily since the fucking 60s. Myths and ignorance have overpowered the true history of Asians in America, even though their history is American history. So, in order to begin to tell this story and correct the record, our guest today is Catherine Siniza Choi, a historian at Berkeley and the author of Asian American Histories of the United States. I'm so thrilled to welcome her on the show. I hope you are too. Please enjoy this interview with Catherine Siniza Choi. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so you've written a book about Asian American history. Uh, why, why write that book now? Well, um, unfortunately, not many people know about Asian American history, even though Asian Americans are a very large and um, historically significant group in the United States today. Yeah. And we have a history that's over 200 years old. And sadly, there have been some really difficult things that um, our communities have been confronting since 2020 um, related to the surge in anti-Asian hate and violence, um, some of which is connected uh, to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And you write in the introduction that you're, you focus on three major themes in Asian American history, that violence, erasure, and resistance are the three themes, if I got it right. That's um, right. Uh, why, why divide it into those three themes and, and tell me about, tell me about them. Well, I think in order to understand what has been happening, especially since 2020, um, with the increase in anti-Asian hate and violence, despite our longstanding presence in the United States, people need to understand that, um, there's a history, there's a history yeah. to this violence that, it didn't just start when um, the WHO announced that uh, COVID-19 was a pandemic. It didn't just start when Donald Trump started referring to the China virus and the Kung flu on uh, Twitter and um, in presidential speeches, that it is much longer than that. And there is a certain kind of urgency when you see these attacks that have been quite visible and egregious on various media platforms that have been circulated over and over again on social media. And it brings Asian Americans to the forefront of, um, of the media. And yet so many people, the general public, doesn't seem to know any well-known Asian Americans in this country, <laughs> according to um, one study, which pointed out that over 40% of Americans couldn't name one single well-known Asian American, even though our vice president, um, Kamala Harris, is the <laughs> first Asian and Black um, vice president and uh, first woman to hold such a um, prestigious uh, position. And so why is that? And that's where the theme of erasure comes in, yeah. that Asian American histories have been neglected, omitted, um, or even purposefully erased. And then the theme of resistance is to say that throughout this long history, Asian Americans have been there pointing this out, pointing out their omission, 
denigration and dismissal in U.S. history and saying that it's wrong. And so um, what we see happening here with Asian Americans in the 21st century fighting for representation um, and a dignified and humane representation of themselves and their communities is also not new. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these are... I, I think about just an experience I had, and, and this is not not even that remarkable, but I think about when I lived in New York for many years and, and going downtown, going to, you know, New York, Chinatown, the one that is in Manhattan. There's a few, uh, you know, areas in, in New York, but seeing like various, you know, benevolent associations or various, you know, community groups, Asian American community groups and seeing, I can't remember the name of it, but you know, the side of a building, the, the name of the group was chiseled on it. And it was like, you know, many, many, many decades old, this organization. And it really is stuck with me as like, oh, this is this is like a long history. This is, you know, the, these folks have been at least in this area of Chinatown in New York City for decades and decades. And as you say, building groups of community, building building infrastructure, building, you know, uh, supportive systems for each other, for, uh, you know, much of the city's history. Absolutely. So the Chinatown you're referring to um, in New York City and Manhattan specifically, that history goes back to um, the second half of the 19th century and wow. around the, the 1870s. So it's well over um, 150 years old. And here I'm based in Berkeley, California, and um, in San Francisco's Chinatown, there's the presence of mutual aid societies that certainly um, goes back 150 years. And you'll see the, the presence of Asian Americans um, and specifically Chinese Americans, for example, in um, Angel Island Immigration Station because those Chinese detainees since the 1910s who arrived there would carve poetry in, in Cantonese um, wow. on the barrack walls of Angel Island Immigration Station. And so the presence is here. We just have to look and we have to be aware of the ways in which this presence has been erased, if not neglected. And why do you feel that that erasure has happened? I mean, you write in the introduction of the book that so often, you know, you and your colleagues will present a piece of Asian American history and you, the audience will say, I, wow, I never learned that in school. And you hear that over and over again. And I read that and I was like, well, here I am again. I'm going to have this interview with Catherine and I'm going to say that probably a bunch of times during the interview. Right. I'm going to be like, oh, wow, I didn't, you know, I mean, we did, the, you know, we did the World War II internment camps in ninth grade global studies. And that's about it, right? And so why do you think that is, that so much of that history has been erased or at the very least not told? Well, there, there are a number of things, um, but you're not alone, Adam. I mean, <laughs> okay, thank you. Look, I was born and raised in, in New York City and I never learned about Asian American history um, when I was in grade school, in high school, in, in the 1970s and, and 1980s. And it's only this year that there has been a more serious move to teach Asian American history in New York City um, high schools. Mm. So it's, you know, 2022. <laughs> this is a history that's over 150 plus years, <laughs> and it's still not in our schools. So that's why yeah. so many of us, including Asian Americans ourselves, 
are unaware of this history until perhaps we're fortunate enough to go to a college or university and we take that one Asian American studies class or um, that one ethnic studies class that includes it. Um, and now with ethnic studies in some universities and some high schools, we are seeing the inclusion, but albeit very limited, of Asian American history. And so you brought up one example of the World War II internment of Japanese Americans. Yeah. Um, some of that is in our high school textbooks. And maybe some of the Chinese labor participation in building the first transcontinental railroad in, mm -hmm. in 1869. But oftentimes it's just a few sentences, you yeah. know, maybe a paragraph. And then there are these so many other aspects of Asian American history that don't even make it in into the curriculum. So that's part of the erasure and not knowing. But in, in the book, it's that I write that it's not just about our classrooms. Um, it's also about um, the erasure of documentary evidence. So mm. during that World War II Japanese American internment, the famous photographer Dorothea Lange um, took many photographs of the internment and, and that process. And her photos portrayed Japanese Americans um, on the West Coast who were forcibly being incarcerated. Um, she portrayed them as American. And there was this subtle, nuanced critique of what our US government was doing by yeah. incarcerating them without due process. And yet her photographs were marked as impounded and then tucked away in an archive and they wow. weren't made visible until decades afterwards. Wow. So there's so many moments where some of that evidence is erased or you'll have historical places. I mentioned Angel Island Immigration Station and the um, Chinese detainees poetry on the barrack walls, but Angel Island Immigration Station was um, completely neglected until just a few decades ago. And yeah. some of that poetry would not have been acknowledged or, or seen um, had it not been for the work of a park ranger and um, then the broader Asian American um, community to, wow. to make sure that that history would be documented and preserved. That's really striking. I, I want to ask you about some of these particular, you said we know these one or two stories. There's so many more we could tell. I want to ask you what some of those are. But first, I, I just, one last piece of setup here, um, because, you know, this is a book about Asian American history, but of course, Asian Americans constitute so many different groups from, with vastly different experiences from, you know, around the world. Uh, and those countries had their own histories, right? These are very different places. Um, and so how do you go about when, when writing a book about Asian American history, uh, how, how do you go about, you know, figuring out how to tell that story as one story or as multiple stories that converge into one or, cause there's a shared experience. I, I, I must imagine of being, you know, at the very least, uh, uh, called Asian American once one arrives. Right. But there's also the, the differing origins and, and different, how, how do you approach that? You approach it with a great deal of humility. Mm. <laughs> I've been teaching Asian American history, teaching it, studying it, writing about it for over two decades. And um, that's how I feel when approaching this 
topic that even with my education and expertise in particular areas, um, I still approach it with a great deal of humility yeah, um, and also curiosity. And I really appreciate your question because even the term Asian American, uh, it has its own history. It's mm. an umbrella, uh, pan-ethnic term. And in the 21st century, it is generally referring to an American of Asian descent, but it is an umbrella term that's encompassing over 20 million people from over 20 um, countries in East, Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent. And on top of the numbers and the diversity in terms of national origin, you have incredible diversity in terms of regional diversity within here in the United States, like New York, California are well known to have large Asian American populations. Um, but Texas, Illinois, Florida, Massachusetts, Washington yeah. State, these also have large populations. And some of the fastest growing Asian American populations are in um, North Dakota, South Dakota, North Carolina, you know, states that wouldn't necessarily come to mind. So there's this regional diversity. There's this incredible um, socioeconomic class diversity. The Pew mm -hmm. Research Center has pointed out that um, income inequality among Asian American groups is incredibly high, that this gap between higher earning Asian Americans versus um, those on, on the lower end of the economic spectrum has, has doubled um, in the late 20th, early 21st century. And so there's just so much diversity. In the book, I also feature the experiences of mixed race Asian Americans, Asian American adoptees. And each of these groups have such unique histories. So it's an incredible challenge to write one book about yeah. Asian Americans. <laughs> and <imagine>. so, <laughs> yeah, that's why I... I tried to emphasize that by the title, that there are Asian American histories and that there's yeah. no way I could include every experience um, in this book. But yeah. I could talk about the ways in which we are different, but also the similarities we share, um, as you were alluding to earlier. And um, one of those similarities are these experiences regarding anti-Asian violence and, and the erasure mm. of our histories and different groups of Asian Americans, sometimes in their own specific groups, but other times across Asian American groups coming together to say, this is wrong. Um, yeah. This kind of violence and, and hate is, is wrong, that it can be used against other people, not solely Asian Americans. And we need to do something about it. Is there in that sense that, uh, you know, you have people coming from all different parts of the world with vastly different cultures in, in vastly different parts of the United States, as you say, the Midwest versus the coast versus everywhere else. But do you also find in the book that there is a, you know, common Asian American experience that that unites uh, the or, you know, that at least has to be grappled with? It, 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 at least in so far as, you know, the way Asian Americans, you know, have been treated by white Americans or by, you know, quote, mainstream American culture over the years. Like, is there is there some sort of 
melting pot's the wrong word, but is there, you know, is there like a, uh, is there, is there some sort of unifying factor that, that comes out? I think there are several unifying factors. And aside from common experience, and I've already mentioned anti-Asian violence, but another common experience is being misunderstood. Mm. And it's not that there isn't an understanding of Asian Americans in the United States, but that it's often a misunderstanding. And stereotypes of our diverse communities lump us together. Yes. And uh, make it seem like Asian Americans are a knowable people. Mm. Um, but actually, these stereotypes tend to do more harm than good. So yeah. some of the most popular examples of stereotypes of Asian Americans that passes common knowledge um, include the model minority. Yeah. Um, that Asian Americans are model minority. And, and that's a, a very complex um, stereotype, but it's, it depicts us in a very flat one-dimensional way that Asian Americans are successful, um, that they are apolitical. We pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and we don't complain. Um, and um, we're, we're really smart. That's another, <laughs> that's yeah. another like uh, strand of, of the model minority myth as um, Asian American historians, um, including myself, call it that, that it's a myth that we're all smart, we're whiz kids, and we have like natural ability in the STEM fields. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and these kinds of stereotypes like the mild minority seem positive, um, but, but they are really harmful. Um, and other popular ones include Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners, that yeah. we're newcomers, even though we have this very long history that's over, you know, a century long. I'm a second generation Filipino American. My husband is a third generation Korean American on his father's side and third generation Chinese American on his mother's side. And so we have two children and they're, they're this multiple generation Korean, Chinese and, and Filipino American. And yet there's this sense that Asian Americans are newcomers and that they're not American. Oh, so, yeah. so those are just two of um, some of the very popular one-dimensional images of us that, that passes common knowledge. And yeah. it, it's unfortunate. It is really unfortunate. Uh, but one of the things that I think is, is most interesting is seeing how the history interacts with those stereotypes or with those ideas. Um, like one that struck me, you mentioned the idea of foreignness and uh, one, one story that always struck me. Uh, I first heard it on the podcast radio lab and then uh, another version of it in the, the documentary, the search for general. So, which is a wonderful documentary um, about uh, American or Americanized Chinese food. Um, and it described the sort of process that, you know, in Chinatowns around the United States that they were often viewed uh, in the early days as, as being, you know, uh, viewed negatively by folks in the cities. And there was, uh, uh, by white folks specifically. And there was an effort to sort of have like 
renovate Chinatowns to like make them interact with white people's notions of foreignness um, to sort of make them tourist attractions in a way, a little bit more. Um, and uh, that when I read that history or I encountered, it, I was like, oh, that explains so much of, you know, what like when I would go visit Chinatown as a kid. Right. Um, and I find that really interesting because it's like a. A, a conscious interaction with the forces that you're talking about that's been, you know, the, that Asian Americans have been grappling with for, you know, well over a century. Um, I, I don't know. Am I, am I doing any justice to any of this or am I completely <laughs> messing it up? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate um, what you're saying and, and the history that you're sharing, which is that when we think about um, Asian American history and how we've learned that um, in our lives growing up in, in the United States, it's often not in the school, but it's often in the communities we grow up in or near. Yeah. And if you are growing up in or, or near a, a Chinatown or have um, a Chinatown like in, in your region or state, so many of us will think of it as a tourist destination, as yeah. a place that is exotic and different. And there's a history yeah. behind that with New York City's Chinatown and, and San Francisco's Chinatown. Yeah. Um, and we have to remind ourselves also that these were ethnic enclaves that grew out of a history of racism, discrimination, yeah. racial segregation. Um, Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans would be in these enclaves because they weren't welcome um, outside of these enclaves. And while there is a history of um, tourism, um, what that did was rather than saying or or integrating Chinatown and um, Chinese and Asian Americans into the broader fabric of being American and being part of American life. Instead, it was used as this is what the other looks like and how they yeah. live. And again, more stereotypes would emerge from this. Um, and some of the most harmful stereotypes um, include the association of Chinese and, and other Asian bodies, including Asian American bodies with disease. And yeah. that Chinatowns would be exotic places sometimes, but then also diseased and, and depraved um, yeah. places. And we would think, well, you know, that kind of, those kinds of histories, so those were like, you know, late 19th, early 20th century histories. And yet here we find ourselves in the age of COVID-19 and the same kinds of associations with Chinatowns, Asian ethnic enclaves, and Asian and Asian American bodies as, as disease carriers. So some things haven't changed. Yeah, and, and they I, need to change. I mean, there's uh, the film Chinatown. That's the premise of, you know, forget it, Jack. It's Chinatown, right? It's like it, that is, oh, Chinatown is a corrupt place. It's a place where bad things happen. It's a, you know, it's it's depraved, as you say. And it's a, that's not that long ago that 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 film was made. Um, I've, yeah, I, I just find that that interaction uh, super interesting. But I'd love to, as you say, like talk about 
some of the other interesting historical strains in, in America of, you know, forgotten, pe- not forgotten pieces, but untold pieces of Asian American history. Um, like, are there any particular stories from the book that leap out to you that, you know, you wish people knew? Oh, there's so many different stories. So. It's too broad a setup. I'm sorry. Are you, are you able to pull one out or is there? <laughs> well, I'll tell, let, let, let me talk about one story first and then we, you know, we can, we can talk about others because there's so many I, I could Sounds choose great. from and that's why that's like a major theme. But um, one of the things that's different about the book is that it's, different from other traditional history books in, in the sense that it's nonlinear. Mm. And what I, um, so for example, each chapter of the book features a specific year and rather the begin, rather than beginning with a year in, let's say the 19th century, the first chapter is the year 2020. Mm. And um, what I did with the year 2020 was I focused on um one of the things I focused on in that chapter was the disproportionate toll of COVID-19 on Filipino nurses in the United States who yeah. are working on the front lines um, of this deadly disease and who are a group that have been here working in um, U.S. hospitals and other healthcare institutions for six decades now. Wow. Um, but I was talking about that stereotype of the perpetual foreigner. And there, there's a way in which people are still thinking, unless they personally know a Filipino nurse, um, they're still thinking that this is somehow a new group. And in that chapter, I, I say, it's not, an, it's not a new group. Um, this is a group that U.S. hospitals have actively recruited to work um, at the bedside, to work in intensive care units. Wow to work in emergency rooms, um, often in public inner city hospitals, often on the least desirable work shifts, um, which are the places and, and the times that are very difficult to, to recruit nurses to, to work in. And so this is a history that goes back to um, the mid 20th century when immigration laws changed. Um, so, so many Filipino nurses could come here, but it actually even goes back to the late 19th and early 20th century when the U.S. colonized the Philippines and mm. established an Americanized training hospital system there wow. that educated Filipino nurses in the Philippines in U.S. hospital techniques, um, uh, and in the English language. So in order wow. to become a Filipino nurse in the Philippines in the early 20th century, you had to have fluency in the English language. Wow. Um, so these are some of these like layers of history that help explain why things are the, the way they are today. And it's not solely that Filipino nurses immigrate here because they want to, but it's also because they're actively recruited. It's also because of this colonial legacy of their nursing training and their English language fluency. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, the 
you know, Filipino nurses is a phenomenon that I think a lot of Americans are familiar with. Maybe say, oh, why, uh, why is that? I, uh, I don't know. Uh, you, people like to immigrate and, and, you know, this is the sort of job that people take. Well, you know, we think that there's a, a simple, you know, explanation. The fact that it goes back to colonization in the late 19th century. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and like the starting of this particular education program is like, uh, that's incredible. I feel like you're, you've just like telescoped me through history so quickly. Um, and uh, so that what created a, a trend where you, you just had a, a large number of Filipino women being, being educated that creates an immigration inflow. Then there's a, a law that makes that an easier way to immigrate. You have recruiting and then you just end up with what a pipeline that persists, persists to, to this day. That's actually quite an accurate <laughs> summary there. This is this is what I do, Catherine. I, I talk to academics and I condense what they say into something easy and digestible. It's literally my only skill. I don't come up with the information. I occasionally make a joke, but mostly I just I'm I'm a good summarizer. You've you've identified <laughs> the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> uh, you really I mean that that really was like a succinct um, <laughs> all those succinct succinct insights there that um, point to how this is not something new. And it's also not a historical accident. It's also not solely about individual choices, but but also about histories. I've also read and and, uh, please excuse me, because this is me half remembering an article, you know, from that I read uh, a year or two ago. But that that even the the government of the Philippines is like, uh, you know, supports this uh, this pipeline in a way, because now it's seen as a an an export. I don't want to use the word export because we're talking about people, but it's it's seen as a a profitable or beneficial interaction that, that the Philippines has with the United States. Is that the case? Yes, that's definitely the case. Um, Starting in 1972, then president and dictator Ferdinand Marcos, um, he pivoted the Philippine economy towards a labor export policy. So Mm. so export is is, um, an appropriate term to use, but it is the export of human resources as opposed to um, goods. And one of the things that... um, Marcos observed in the late 1960s and early 1970s was that there was a huge demand for Filipino nurses in the United States and Mm. in some European countries as well, but primarily in the United States. And previously, the Philippine government had tried to keep Filipino nurses in the Philippines um, as a kind of Nursing is a kind of national patriotic duty. But Ferdinand Marcos said, well, if there's this demand, why don't we just meet that demand? And we'll train more nurses and we'll send them abroad. And this led to a much larger labor export policy where the Philippines is in global history, one of the most important countries in terms of exporting people overseas to work as overseas contract workers, overseas Filipino workers. And one of the reasons why the government wants to do that is because when they work overseas, it lessens the pressure to provide domestic employment Mm. opportunities in the Philippines. And then when they work abroad, they earn foreign currency and they bring that 
back to the Philippines in the form of remittances. Mm. And remittances is a multi-billion dollar um, uh, economy. Yeah. Uh, and, and it really um, helps the, the Philippine economy. So it's very lucrative. Um, so some people praise that kind of economy. Um, but many others also criticize it because there's a social cost to have your um, people being exported overseas. You're separating yeah. parents from their children. Um, you are exporting among the best and brightest yeah. Um, yeah, to, to work overseas. And today the Philippines still exports nurses um, not solely to the United States, but to many different parts of the world. But they also um, uh, promote the migration of domestic workers, um, seafarers, construction workers to the Middle East, um, to Europe and, and other parts of Asia. So this is an example of how U.S. and Philippine Asian American histories intersect with a global history. Yeah. And what I, I find this so fascinating. And, and one of the things that strikes me most about it is that, you know, we are so used to in white America, you know, looking at immigrants as, uh, oh, these are people who are coming here and recently have started coming here and are settling down. Right. Um, and that, that's part of what fuels the taking our jobs narrative that you sometimes see or et cetera. Um, but it, when you talk about these, I mean, uh, as you say, uh, Filipinos have been coming to the United States to work as nurses for uh, over a hundred years. Right. And similarly, when you look at, you know, farm labor in the United States that um, folks from, you know, the, the South of the border, right. <laughs> right from, from uh, Latin America, from South America have been coming to, from Mexico have been coming to the United States to do farm labor for the entire history of there being farms in Texas and Florida and places like that. It literally, is what the entire agricultural system has always been based on. Um, but we, for some reason, have this blindness. We, we uh, you know, erase the past history, as you say, uh, so that we always look at it as a new phenomenon that's happening now when, in fact, like, no, we've actually built our society on this, uh, you know, migrant labor force and... It's very hard that migrant labor force, A, because, you know, especially in the case of uh, uh, farm laborers, it's often criminalized. But um, also, it's as you say, it's hard to be an immigrant. We valorize it so much, but it's hard to leave your family, come to a new place. It's isolating. It's, you know, there's all these disadvantages to it. And we don't see it for what it is, which is not not something new, but a, but a part of American life. Absolutely. And you brought up um, agricultural labor. Um, that's uh, something that also intersects with um, many different Asian American histories mm. from the late 19th century into um, the 20th century. And in fact, during that time period, late 19th, early 20th century, so much of the Asian immigration to the United States was connected to agricultural labor. Um, ah. sugar plantation labor in Hawaii, um, and also yeah. um, uh, agricultural migrant labor um, up and down um, the U.S. West Coast. And in states like California, 
um, Japanese Americans distinguish themselves through uh, the growing of strawberries and snap beans. And um, Chinese laborers um, transform tens of thousands of, of swampland um, into arable land. Um, and also made many um, agricultural innovations in terms of the cherry industry, the citrus industry. And we don't think about that yeah. <laughs> uh, when we think about their immigration, in part because, um, as we've been discussing, these Asian American histories and their contributions to the U.S. economy have been neglected uh, and obscured. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have to take a quick, quick break. We're way overdue. My producer's going to kill me. So <laughs> we'll, we'll be right back with more Catherine Choi. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So we're back with Catherine Choi. Uh, so I have so many more questions for you. We talked about uh, the long history of Filipino nurses in the United States. Uh, I find it really interesting that around that same time, you know, we had, or over the, over the same period, we had the stereotype of Asian Americans being associated with disease, as you say. Um, uh, that's that's a really fascinating contrast to me. Where did that stereotype come from? That stereotype has a long history that goes back over 150 years and um, is as old as the first mass wave of Asian migration to the United States. Um, so in the mid 19th century, when um, the 
there was a mass migration of Chinese um, to California after the discovery of gold in Northern California in 1848. And we started to see within just a few decades the association of Chinese bodies with smallpox mm. and um, Chinese bodies with cholera and Japanese American farmers with typhoid. Mm. Um, and so these kinds of diseases, smallpox, cholera, um, typhoid, bubonic plague, leprosy, um, would often be used as a rationale by our American politicians to restrict the immigration of Asians to, to the United States. And this also resulted not only in uh, restrictive immigration laws, um, but also in the violent treatment of uh, Asian immigrants, Asian Americans um, in the United States beginning in the second half of the 19th century. So what we're seeing in 2020 to the present moment is, is hardly new, um, but, but really has this, this longer history. Yeah, sometimes I something I've been thinking about more is is how sometimes certain ideas or or images are embed themselves deep within a culture and then they come out in surprising ways. I think about this is a weird example, but I think about Rick Caruso right now is running for the mayor of Los Angeles, right? And this guy when he runs, he is evoking Ronald Reagan. Like he looks like Ronald Reagan. He sounds like Ronald Reagan and he's tapping into a deep thing in, you know, everyone's oh California blue state, right? This guy, this guy's a Republican. He's running, but he's tapping into this deep cultural memory of this man that people loved back in the sixties, you know, 60 years ago. Um, and, uh, I, it just makes me think about how, how certain ideas embed themselves and they can arise again. And I know that's a very strange comparison, but, um, it's just what I think about when you say that, you know, these, these, uh, the, the rise in violence that we've seen, the rise of associating Asian Americans with COVID-19 is like, has been lurking under the surface as, as something that was, that was able to arise again. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. It but. makes a lot of sense. And. There is that experience and this longer history of politicians using similar rhetoric, similar mm -hmm. scripts, and it becomes a way to say there's something wrong with this group of people. There's yeah. this narrative that they are inferior, they're non-American because they're dirty and, and diseased. Yeah. And so there are certain words that... Uh, remain <laughs> um, that association of filth um, with mm. ethnic enclaves um, and Asian Asian American bodies can remain. And even though we don't know where they necessarily come from, we can hear it and it's evoking that longer history and, and the power of, of those words. Yeah. And it comes from politicians, but it also comes from popular culture. Yeah. And in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a form of popular culture um, was World's Fairs mm -hmm. um, in yeah. various cities in the United States where um, masses of people, you know, the general American public would come and it was a form of entertainment 
but also considered a form of education that here are white Americans, European Americans at the top of a racial hierarchy of civilization. And here are examples of other peoples and, and the ways that they live, which is not as civilized, which, which mm. are inferior. Um, you see that in, in World's Fairs, you see it in political cartoons during that time yeah. period, which would depict Asians as a threat to the United States because they threatened white labor and because they were dirty, diseased, and, and uncivilized. And many of us may not recall these things, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what political cartoons or what world's fairs are you, are you talking about? And yet some of those images can come up in our, our consciousness. Yeah. And, and that's where that history comes from, from politics, from culture, from, from economic competition. Yeah, I mean, when I, that's <laughs> just a very silly example, but, you know, I grew up watching Looney Tunes, you know, and Looney Tunes are a cartoon from the 40s, right? And a lot of, and you know, many decades, but the ones I remember watching are 40s and 50s. And what are those based on? They're based on vaudeville in many cases. They're based on vaudeville comedies, you know, stock characters, things like that. Bugs Bunny is like a, is a vaudeville character, right? And what was, what were vaudeville comedy acts based on? The stereotypes of the time. And so, you know, these ideas can sort of leach through and, you know, embed themselves in these, in these deep ways that you don't, uh, it, you know, it's the, the classic example of, of uh, Mickey Mouse descending from minstrel show characters, you know, and like the, with the big white gloves, right. Um, and these sorts of things like they, they can stick around and exert their influence on you in ways that uh, are hard to, Hard to consciously be aware of, but can still, you know, affect affect ideas today. Yeah, absolutely. In the book, um, popular culture is uh, an important realm um, for the erasure of Asian Americans and Asian yeah. American experience, and also the perpetuation of of misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, so, to give you an example, I mean, you were talking about um, cartoons, but when we think about the golden age of Hollywood as mm -hmm. another example of um, popular culture, um, this was an age where we had Hollywood films where Asians and Asian Americans were erased. They couldn't even play themselves. Yeah. There was the phenomenon of yellow face where yeah. um, an Asian character would be portrayed by um, a white person in very exaggerated, um, almost cartoonish, yeah. Um, features, the slanted eyes um, or yeah. uh, aspects to make them look extra menacing. Um, and uh, that was how Hollywood saw Asians and, and yeah. Asian Americans. Um, and there were some exceptions, but uh, those were exceptions. And it's still in the 21st century. There have been lots of improvements and a lot of breakthroughs, but uh, representation in, in popular culture is is still a challenge for Asian yeah. Americans e even today, d despite um, the progress that has been made. Yeah, well, I want to ask you where where does the name Asian American as a as a label where where does that begin to appear and 
you know, what was the, uh, why was the reason that, that it became to be used? And what are the sort of political ramifications of its, of its use? Because it's a different way of thinking about uh, this group or these groups than we had had, you know, in the, in the earlier periods that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's a great question. We take this term Asian American for granted today. And mm. it has this popular connotation that, well, Asian American, it's um, an American of, of Asian descent, but this is a term that also has a history. Um, it's a history that um, comes out in the late 1960s. This is a term that was created by two graduate students at UC Berkeley, um, Emma G and Yuji Ichioka in 1968. And when they um, formed the Asian American Political Alliance. And to identify and call themselves Asian American was very meaningful at that time. Because prior to the late 1960s, um, most people would refer to Asian Americans as Orientals. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the problem with Orientals was that it really commodified Asian Asians and Asian Americans as, as things like yeah. Oriental vases or rugs. It, it sounds like a foreign car, you know. It sounds like it sounds like we we repair all cars foreign and domestic. It's like that's a type of thing you can go to an Oriental restaurant or an Oriental grocery store. It doesn't sound like a. It sounds consumerist rather than a type of person. Yes, and it it also right it it speaks to um, something exotic or something yeah. other. Right? Yeah. Um, but if it wasn't Oriental, it, there would be racial slurs like quote unquote Jap or right. gook. Um, and these were purposefully used to, with the intent to, to harm and to demean um, and to make Asians and Asian Americans um, feel less than human. So to say we understand that there has been this history of naming Asian Americans and often in derogatory ways, and we are going to name ourselves. We're mm. going to claim an identity that brings our various groups together because by that time, uh, there were more Asian Americans who were born in the United States. Um, rather than immigrants uh, by the, the mid 20th century. And even though their parents, that immigrant generation, they may not have seen eye to eye. Like I'm Chinese, I'm Japanese, I'm from this province, I'm from this prefecture. But their children were going to school together. They were yeah. growing up as Asian American and they understood that the United States was their home, but they were facing serious employment discrimination. Um, they were they were experiencing harassment and bullying um, in their schools. They were observing that no one knows about Asian American history. Yeah. Um, even World War II internment, which we might take for of Japanese Americans, which we might take for granted today. That was that was not taught. Um, yeah. in, in um, uh, the post-World War II immediate period. And these second-generation Chinese, Japanese, Filipino-Americans realized that they shared more in common with one another. And they were demanding a recognition of their Americanness, but also their 
Asian Americanness. So I didn't realize that 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 the rise of that term indicates a shared identity in a way among folks from those different backgrounds. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Because really prior to that time, Asian Americans, meaning this, these groups, these very diverse groups, they didn't necessarily see themselves as sharing a common history or identity. They were coming from different places. They spoke different languages and yet they found themselves being treated in very similar ways. Um, and unfortunately in, in racist and discriminatory ways. Yeah. And they realized by the 1960s that, you know, this strategy where Japanese Americans used to say, well, we're, we're not like Chinese Americans, so don't treat us like that. Mm-hmm. That strategy wasn't working mm. <laughs> um, anymore. <laughs> and even during World War II, um, if you were Asian American, but you were not Japanese, people were wearing buttons. I am Chinese. I am Korean. I'm Filipino because Americans couldn't tell Asian Americans yeah. apart. And they realized they had these, these similarities and they had to speak up against anti-Asian violence and hate and racial injustice overall. Yeah. That's fascinating. So now, uh, because it's still important to, to keep those specific identities as well. Uh, but there's also like a real value in recognizing, yeah, that shared struggle and those shared touch points. And also I imagine the shared experience of growing up in America as a second or third generation uh, immigrant that you'd like, Hey, that's, that's actually something new. That's not something that is, uh, or that is, that is something that's specific to America, right? That, that experience of growing up in Los Angeles as, uh, you know, the children of Asian immigrants and like, okay, well, our parents are from different countries, but we actually do share a common experience that would be useful to like talk about, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's what yeah. they realized when they started to be in similar spaces and especially in college classrooms. And I should mm. also add that they were also this pioneering group of Asian Americans with Asian American referring to a political sensibility of racial justice um, were very much influenced by the black freedom struggle Mm. um, by the Chicano movement and the American Indian movement. Yeah. And so this term Asian American is a, uh, a term of identification, but also came out of political struggle for racial justice in the 1960s that was connected with those movements and international movements of decolonization as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, you know, the the experience of Black Americans is, is, you know, always sort of in the back of my mind as we have these conversations, as I'm sure they are for you, too. And I'm curious if there were, you know, moments of solidarity between, you know, the Asian and black communities in, you know, the the period of, of the civil rights struggle of the 60s and et cetera. Are there intersections of those struggles? Absolutely. So we now have ethnic studies today. It came out of struggles in the late 1960s when newly defined Asian Americans um, were in solidarity with um, the Black Student Union and the Third World Liberation Front at universities and colleges like San Francisco State College and University of California, Berkeley. And they were in solidarity that we needed to have 
a curriculum that was inclusive and that was relevant to mm. the communities in which um, our institutions live and, live and serve. And I point out in the book that that Asian Black solidarity um, didn't just happen in 1968 and 1969, that there's actually also a 150-plus year history of that solidarity as well, going wow. back to 1869 with Frederick Douglass's speech uh, supporting Chinese immigration to the United States and su supporting wow. um, the naturalization of, of Chinese immigrants here. Uh, it goes back to African-American soldiers who were in the uh, U.S. military who were colonizing the Philippines and recognized, some of them recognized, that what they were doing um, was not democratic. Yeah. And they could see parts of their experience uh, in the colonization of the Philippines and Filipinos who were struggling for their own independence against Spain. Um, we see this during Japanese American internment when some Japanese Americans who were interned, um, one oral history I really enjoyed listening to was of a Japanese American young man who was incarcerated uh, in California and a black family who his family had uh, lived next door to uh, came, the marshals, they came to visit him uh, in his uh, relocation center to bring his family um, apple pie a la mode. Uh, it was a very <laughs> hot day and they had to give him and his family the apple pie um, a la mode through a fence, um, but they did it, you know, out of friendship. And sometimes those very like mundane moments of, of friendship are really quite extraordinary and historically significant. And yeah. they remind us that even though our communities are often pitted against one another, yeah. that there's another way of reimagining both our past, present, and future. Yeah, I was going to say that that those stories are so important because it's been the strategy of you know, white supremacy in America to pit groups against each other. That's part of the, in my understanding, and you tell me if you disagree, but that's part of the origin of the model minority myth is to, is to contrast and say, look, you know, uh, contrast one group with another and say, hey, these folks are lazy, these folks are doing it right, et cetera, while still trapping both in stereotypes. Um, and, you know, solidarity is the, is, can be the antidote to that, ideally. Yes. The model minority, which became popular also around this time period of the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, it came about by exactly pitting Asian Americans against African Americans and saying yeah. that Asian Americans are a model minority who don't complain, don't ask for government help, and in contrast to uh, Black mm. Americans. And... It's not to say that there isn't any tension between Asian American and, and Black communities. Um, there are, and, and we need to continue to um, talk about them and work through them. But what you're talking about, this, this strategy of divide and conquer, is a longstanding strategy. Yeah. And we see this with not solely um, Black Americans and Asian Americans, but we see this with 
various groups of Asian Americans, um, white, white Americans, Mexican Americans in agricultural labor. Yeah. So to try to control wages, you bring in uh, another group uh, and, and you pit them against one another. So they're fighting against one another as opposed to a kind of solidarity um, yeah. that recognizes that there are broader forces working uh, towards their common exploitation. I mean, divide and conquer is the tool of those in power always, right? Whether it's, I mean, you just knitted so many things together, whether it's uh, in labor struggles, in racial equity struggles, like pitting groups against each other and saying, no, don't team up because you don't really get along. You actually hate each other. You know, the people organizing the labor union, oh, they're, you know, they're, oh, they, they're racist, they're et cetera. You know, they're trying to create those divisions and wedge people. That is the strategy, uh, no matter what dimension you're looking into. And, and solidarity is always the cure. I think solidarity is a cure. And it's so hard, though, to, to get to that point. Yes. And I think what makes Asian American solidarity with other groups fragile comes from this, this theme of the erasure of our histories mm. and our experiences not being viewed as part of the American experience, always sort of at that outside looking in. And yeah. I hope my, my books and my research and the research of Asian American historians, um, Asian American studies scholars, librarians, archivists, and community organizers and journalists, we've, we've been working really hard these past <laughs> couple of years to to challenge this. And do you feel that we're seeing movement on that front? I mean, I, I, I feel that you know, I've seen more and more tellings of these histories. We've seen more and more depictions of them in, in pop culture, uh, which is I think it's easy to overrate uh, progress in pop culture as representing progress in society at large. I think that does happen. Oh, hey, we got some pretty good, We got two or three good movies. Uh, the problem solved. Probably not. But, you know, pro it's progress nonetheless and very important. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. Have you do you feel that that we are starting to see progress in telling these histories. I do think we're seeing some progress in the sense that um, the surge in anti-Asian violence in recent years has been so harrowing and so egregious that I think so many different groups of people in various media, education, various industries in, in the government uh, are proceeding with a sense of urgency, yeah. personal urgency, family urgency, community, national urgency. I know I wrote this book because I'm concerned. I'm really concerned about the kind of world and the kind of United States of America we're leaving our children and future generations. And one way to get to this solidarity is to confront these histories. Yeah. And sometimes these histories are uncomfortable, but then sometimes when you look at themes of solidarity and friendship and working together, there are also these moments and spaces of joy and, and hopefulness. Yeah. And those are things we, we really need now more than ever. 
That's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for that. The book is called Asian American Histories of the United States. You can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books or wherever books are sold. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so wonderful having you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you once again to Catherine Choi for coming on the show. If you want to pick up her book, once again, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. And of course, if you want to support the show, head to patreon.com slash adamconover. That's patreon.com slash adamconover. And I want to thank everyone who supports the show at the $15 a month level. That's Adrian, Alexi Batalov, Allison Liparado, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Braden, Brandon Sisko, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Condry, David Conover, Drill Bill, Dude with Games, L, I mean M, excuse me, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tiganoff, Lisa Matulis, Mark Long, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuyagik Ipaluk, Paul Mauk, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogg. Shannon Grimmett, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, Tyler Darach, and Whiskey Nerd 88. If you want to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Of course, I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media or online at adamconover.net. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.